This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Well, hey, everybody, before we get into the podcast, I want to make you aware of a special event that is coming up. If you are tuned in to the podcast the day that it drops, you still have time to sign up for a special event that is being put on by our friends over at Chasing Justice. Chasing Justice, which was co-founded by two good friends of mine, Pastor Sandra Maria Van Opstel and Mark Reddy. It's an organization led by people of color that are seeking to rebuild a just world. They want to see the goodness of God in the world and live justly in light of it. And you guys know that our focus here at The Witness is Black Christians. But at times, one of the things that we believe is so important is to build and foster cross-ethnic solidarity. That's why on August 25th, it's a Tuesday night at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time, there is going to be a special Justice Masterclass event that deals with the interconnected histories of the Black Church and the Brown Church. And I'm proud to announce that along with Pastor Sandra Maria Van Opstel, we are also going to be hearing from our president, Jamar Tisby, alongside of another friend of ours, Dr. Robert Chow Romero, the author of Brown Church. They're going to be in a group dialogue talking about these issues of cross-ethnic solidarity and the connected histories of the Black Church and the Brown Church. And listen, we want to give you the opportunity to sign up for it, to let you know that it's happening. You can do so at chasingjustice.com forward slash masterclass. And listen, it is absolutely free. That's right. It's completely free. You just have to register at chasingjustice.com forward slash masterclass. And we're going to make you aware of more opportunities and events like this that intersect with our mission of speaking to core concerns within the Black Christian community. So we hope to see you this Tuesday, August 25th at 7 p.m. Central Time for A Way Forward Together, the connected history of Black and Brown churches featuring our president, Jamar Tisby. We hope to see you there. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And we have a special episode for you today. Jamar and I were privileged enough to have a conversation with Pastor John Anwuchekwa, He is the pastor, the lead pastor of Cornerstone Church in ATL. He is also the host of a podcast called Four in the Morning, a podcast all about finding hope in the darkness. And he is one of the team members at Portrait Coffee. It's a coffee shop in the West End of ATL. Some of you know Pastor John from his ministry locally in Atlanta, and then others of you know him from his Twitter account. You can follow him at Jono, J-A-W-N-O, on Twitter. But he also has a broader ministry as well. And on July 3rd, he wrote some tweets about his church making the decision to leave the SBC denomination. He wrote an article following up on this over at our friend's blog over at the front porch entitled Four Reasons We Left the SBC. And I commend you guys to read that. It is in the show notes of this particular podcast. And he came on to talk about his decision, talk about some of the things that he learned, the experiences that he had. And we had a wonderful time distilling and unpacking some of these things. I think it's going to be healing and cathartic for so many of you. 
And it's also going to be instructive. If you are still in these spaces, how should we respond? How should we act? What should we do? And then also, what should our mindset be, both culturally and theologically? So we really enjoyed this conversation with Pastor John O. Again, you can find that article in the show notes. It will be referenced multiple times throughout this interview. And so Jamar and I are privileged to welcome Pastor John Anwuchekwa to Pass the Mic. Pastor John, thank you so much for joining us here on Pass the Mic. Oh, glad to be here, man. You know, it feels yeah. like forever ago. It feels almost like years ago, actually. But in reality, it was only July 3rd ah. when you posted a brief Twitter thread. Can you believe this? It's only July 3rd July when 3rd. you posted this Twitter thread that caught so many of our attention and just created this lively conversation. And yeah. I'll read this briefly for people who haven't read it yet. I'll actually read your thread. In yeah. the first tweet, you said, on Sunday, we voted as a church to leave the SBC. Uh I don't say this for applause. There's nothing particularly commendable about our decision. I only mention it to bring clarity surrounding where and with whom we stand in days like this. Frankly, we should have done it sooner. Often when you find yourself with people you dearly love and want the best for, you end up staying around longer than you should. That was us. Mm. In the coming weeks, I'll be more vocal and comprehensive as to our reasons why. But for the time being, I'll say this much. Whenever you swim in certain streams, you implicitly hold up a sign that says, come on in. The water's fine. We don't want to hold up that sign. Instead, if I'm going to hold up any sign, it's going to be one on the outside of the pool that says, enter at your own risk. Okay. So first of all, that last tweet was fire. Okay. Wow. (laughs) That summarizes so much of what Jamar and I feel. And Jamar, I know that hits you too when you read it. Oh my, 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 my. I was like, John, stop reading my journal. Hey, man. Yeah. No, no. But I think that that says something that it's like that that's the common experience, right? That it says something where we don't even have to have a conversation with one another to be having the exact same conversation. Like we can speak in shorthand with glances and know explicitly with great depth what's being said. We only write the longhand for people that are on the outside of the conversation, right? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That's so good. Yeah. Oh man, there's so much I want to get into. But before we get into kind of the particulars of these tweets and then also the article that you wrote explaining everything, yeah. can you give us some context kind of zooming out and going back a little bit? Give us a little bit more context about your church and about why you initially chose to join the SBC. Because I yeah. think that's important for us to go back and figure out, you know, so many of us have connections to white evangelical spaces. Right, right. And it's so important for us to go back and, and kind of revisit how we were thinking before to see the comparison yeah. and how it's different now. Uh, that's, that's good. Yeah. So um, as, as far as it related to us, we moved to Atlanta from Denton, Texas to plant uh, Blueprint Church in 2009. So we planted that church. I planted with... Um, Dahadi and yeah, it was 25 of us that moved from Denton, another 12 people that moved from Memphis. And we planted the church officially in 2010. Uh, we had like uh, independent Bible background. You know, I went to DTS. And so we plant this church. And then a year later, we joined the SBC, right? So the church was planted up and running. Stuff was fine. Uh, 
so we joined the SBC based on um, information that we had from a guy at the time. So there was a guy at the time that helped us out uh, as it related to uh, church planning in the city of Atlanta. And the more that we learned about him, we liked what we saw about him and his church. And he said, like, yo, you know, I'm SBC, right? And that kind of caught us off guard because we had, I think, the same caricature in our minds that most people had when you hear SBC. Like, so we sit back and it's like, SBC, what? How? And so then we started to learn more about the denomination there through him. And we found out, oh, the caricature that we had was false, right? That it wasn't just a bunch of, you know, backwoods, white dude, but there was a diversity there of thought. There were people that it seemed like we had the the same heartbeat and all the things that we shared, the reasons why we hoped to plant the church in Atlanta, whenever we shared it with uh, crowds or segments of the group, they would yes and amen all the stuff that we did. And they said, we would love to help fan the flame of this. This is what we're trying to do. This is the direction that we're trying to go in. We see all of these things and it's a, yeah, your presence is helpful and needed and necessary. So from our standpoint, it was, oh, this is good. I think there could be a, a partnership here, but like anything, I mean, we all know what that's like. We entered in with this kind of um, uh, hopeful skepticism, right? Yeah. Where uh, I think at the time, uh, the hopefulness and skepticism were both uh, in the same size font, right? The skepticism may have been Times New Roman, like <laughs> right. 12 point, but it was all caps. And the hope was Times New Roman 12 point, but it was lowercase. So we were just like, hey, let's get in. Well, then as soon as we get in, um, whenever you get into a group, you hear things like, we've got a long way to go, but we're trying to get there. If you're really serious about trying to help us get there, the whole don't just stay on the sidelines and complain. There's lots of folks that stay on the sideline and complain and then move out. If you really want to see things change, then you've got to dive in and help to change things. And so we're like, I bet let's get in. Let's really be invested in this thing. And and so, yeah, so our journey started in 2011. And then you branched out and now you pastor Cornerstone Church also right. in Atlanta. Yeah. Now, obviously a decision like this doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. Nah. Right. But there are certainly what, what I, I guess we could call inflection points or, right. or red flags. Yeah. So can you share a few of those with us? And yeah. what about these moments made it clear uh, that your church didn't belong in right. the SBC? Yep. Um, so, I mean, I look at our generation of us, guys like us, and I feel like, you know, Trayvon Martin is the dividing line, right? There's this kind of, you know, cultural collective, like pre and post Trayvon. So, you know, you had that, yeah, in 2014, Mike, or that in 2012, Mike Brown, 2014, those things are there. Uh, the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was the very first time that it was like, or not the first time, but that was the clearest time 
where it was like, yo, not 81% of y'all voted for him. And it was like, you know, the Southern Baptist convention was the like, yeah, like if you are a white evangelical, and I don't just use that term pejoratively, but it's like, if that is uh, how you would identify yourself, then the SBC is a home. Like it, it feels like home to that group and to look up and to say, dad, y'all, I thought that we were like, Mm -hmm. I thought that there was a, we, and this was very clear. Like it wasn't even like, like close, like y'all, like, man, Russell Moore, I'll never forget in 2016, Russell Moore just started to speak out again. Just the basic things like, yo, Donald Trump is not a nice guy, right? Like he's not decent with manners and things like that. And was sharing things like that, like influential pastors within the SBC were all like, we're pulling millions from the ERLC. We're pulling millions from the cooperative program. We're not going to give and all of this stuff. And I'm like, dad, if Russell Moore can say that and they could come at this dude like that, yo, this ain't, this ain't it. Right. But, uh, but at this point it's a not, nah, Hey, stay love indoors. All right. At this point where we've got inroads, we've got relationships with people that are all the way up to the top of the denomination. And so at, at that point, it's like, all right, yo, yo, let's really lean in, um, man. And I think from there, it, it, it was at least once per year. So then at the end of that year, the, the SBC has a pastor's conference at the front end of the denomination. Uh, they asked me to speak at it. I speak at it in 2017. This is a month after uh, we bring home our first daughter from the NICU, right? So this is the, like, for folks that think that we'd, we would just kind of fly by night, it's a, man, my daughter's in the NICU for a month, yo. We brought her wow. home. Uh, we brought her home in May, fam. She's four pounds. And I cancel everything else that I've got to do for the next uh, uh, few months except for that and another trip that I had to Brazil. So I go for four days. I speak to all their high school students. I'm speaking at joints. I speak at the pastor's conference. And then I say, yo, I've got to leave early. I leave. I go home. I'm with my family for a night. I wake up. I get on a plane. I go to Brazil. I wake up in Brazil to this large tweet storm, text messages, SBC fails to to denounce the alt right, right? So that took place. And I'm like, see, here I am. My face is up front. Y'all want to tout all of the diversity stuff, and y'all failed to denounce the alt right. And the crazy thing was, they failed to denounce the alt right, not because the majority of the people wouldn't have done it. It was because the majority of the people were in the dark as to what the alt right was. And that to me, like, that's a problem, yo. Like That's the, whole the alt-right, like the alt-right is fishing in this pool. Like y'all have the pool that this group would fish in, and y'all are so concerned with what? Marxism and CRT that you can't 
talk about the very dangers that the majority of the people in the denomination are susceptible to. And that was where it was like, yo, something's wrong. So then what I get is a bunch of DMs and texts. Hey, John, sorry, man. Yo, this never should have gone on. We're really going to work to set things right, blah, blah, blah. And then that that goes on. And so again, it's like, all right, all right, let's, yeah, let's work on this thing. I start to serve as a trustee at Southeastern. Um, then 2018, uh, when J.D. Greer is getting ready to be elected, Mike Pence, they accept the invitation from Mike Pence to come. Mm-hmm. And the convention, when he's there, essentially turns into this Trump rally. And once again, here's what I get. I get a bunch of DMs and texts from a bunch of people that I thought were on our side saying, yo, we're sorry, man. This never should have taken place. Oh, I'm so angry. And there's vitriol in the DMs and the texts. But publicly, fam, like, I'm like, yo, why isn't, and like, why is everybody so politically correct? Why doesn't anybody else that's not somebody of a like platform like me, why don't y'all as the peers of the Steve Gaines and all this stuff publicly say that was wrong? And that's why I'm like, all right, I don't think the problem is just uh, the misinformed people at the top. I think the problem is this culture of like, it. people just seemed like that they wouldn't like call things out. But again, it's like, all right, let's, let's, let's go back to work, right? Like, let's really kind of dig in. Um, and then 2019, you know, we go to the SBC, uh, uh, again, trying to dig in. Um, and then what was it? Uh, 2020 at T at, T4G when like Moeller uh, yeah, backflips right. and basically uses his platform to give a um, uh, endorsement for Trump and saying, yo, I'm only going to vote for him. And, and that was when it was like, uh, once again, like I wasn't surprised by that. What shocked me was, where's everybody else that's going to say, you're bugging? Like, I guarantee you, if Right. If he used his platform to advocate for the Democratic candidate, mm-hmm. that people would say things like, uh, it's not appropriate for a seminary president to use their platform to advocate for a political candidate. And that's the, the thing. It seems like like you're only too political when you talk about things that black people care about. That's what it felt like. Um, so then all of those things were, were, were just, you know, pieces of straw on the back. And then just kind of in 2020, it wasn't anything that they did. It was what they didn't do. Just seeing how literally the entire world understood, yo, something's a problem. Something's wrong. And it's not just that we need to have more conversations about unity, but there may be something to this systemic injustice. There may be something to all of this. And so you literally have the entire world changing. Like you have Mississippi changing its state flags. You have NASCAR, like 
fam, NASCAR, you have the NFL, you have all the stuff, the entire world. And it just felt like, um, yeah, that the Southern Baptist Convention was kind of like, I think that we're cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, let's talk about unity in the church, but there was no like big push, like, what must we do? And that was when it just became clear as day. Um, yo, when I put this in what I wrote, it's like, oh, this is just the wrong vehicle, fam. Like, mm-hmm. where we're trying mm-hmm. to get to uh, racial equity, like, that's an island. And this is a charter bus. And there's a bunch of people that said, hey, we really want this bus to go in the right direction. And fam, it, it, it just became increasingly clear to me, right? You cannot drive a bus to Hawaii, right? So it's like, uh, man, we have the means and the resources on this bus to get off of the bus and to buy plane tickets for everybody on the bus and for us to get there. But I don't think there was the willingness or even the understanding that it was that big of a problem. So all of those things just kind of put us in a place where it was like, it wasn't any one of those things, but it was all of those things that just made it crystal clear. And once it was crystal clear, like once you see that stuff, you can't unsee it. And I was just like, yo, I've got to pull that little brake thing on the bus and I've got to get off. And my picture was at the front. And so I just want to make sure that everybody that got on the bus because of me, I just want them to know I'm going to get off. And here's the four reasons why y'all make your own choice, but I just don't want anybody to be here on the bus saying, yo, I I thought John and them was still on here. Nah, fam, like I'm out. Man, you just like Mm -hmm. receipts and you walk through it chronologically. And I can resonate so much because I was part of the Presbyterian Church in America, a very conservative uh, Presbyterian denomination with Southern roots, very similar to right. SBC in that way. And I just want to go back to an earlier point you made uh, yeah. and, and, and do some translating for folks who have okay. only and ever always been in Black churches, right? So right. I think sometimes folks look at, at guys like you and me and 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 uh other christian men and women who end up in an sbc or a pca and they're like what are you doing how could you not see right but you you laid it out so beautifully and accurately when you said you know the the your 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 entryway was an individual and an interaction with an individual that was positive and then this yeah. told you, oh, this is my association. This is, you know, the combination. Yeah. Okay, well, this guy's cool. So maybe there's space for us there. Right, okay. right. So many of us, that's how we get into it. It's it's not, yeah. you know, you can speak of a denomination writ large, but your actual individual experience with a church or a person can differ from the sort of uh, stereotype or bigger Absolutely. narrative. Of it, and so I just want to highlight that point for folks. It's like, yeah, dumb. <laughs> we we but, right. but we see things that 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 give us confidence that maybe yeah. can occur, and then all this stuff happens that you talked about, and I'm like, well, yep, yep, I remember yep. every one of those, 
and it undermines yeah. your confidence in it. But I want to go to uh, the article you wrote. You said yeah. you wrote an article that said four reasons we left the SBC. I recommend it to all of our listeners. Just Google it. And in the article, you said the SBC liked me, but I feel yeah. like they failed people like me. Right. I'd rather give myself to serving that overlooked and under-resourced demographic than merely enjoy the perks of being treated as some outlier. And so yeah. I'm wondering, can you talk more about the collective Black experience you witnessed in the denomination outside of just yourself? Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just this like feeling of, um, you know, being overlooked or people were only seen when they were in proximity to other African Americans that the SBC liked, right? So it's like people largely, right? And any minority, like that, 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 that's a part of the SBC will tell you this, like, yo, all of our inroads were the same. Like people came into the SBC, right? Like, um, one of the things that you, that you know, or folks that know Dahadi know is he's a catalyzer. He's an includer. He played sports his whole life. So he's all about team. So as soon as he comes into the, the SBC, what he does is he's like bringing this team and he genuinely has a heart to do the same thing, to help people like us. And so what you find is that, man, there's all these dope people that are overlooked unless they have this like cosign, right? Yeah. So it just felt like um, there was a constant like bringing people along with us that people were overlooked until we sat down and said, yo, hey, listen, this is a dope dude right here. Hey, this is a dope church. Hey, this is that. And it just gets exhausting because it's, hey, y'all have access to the same internet that I do, right? The same people that podcast that I do, the same authors and the same books. So it's like, I'm not meeting these people because we grew up in the same town. I'm not meeting these people because we have like, we go to the same family reunions. I'm meeting these people because I'm looking and tapped into a different segment than what's that, than what seems to be like the norm here. And it gets kind of exhausting and tiring to feel like unless I do that work for them, they don't get to enjoy the benefits of being a collective part of the denomination. Wow. And then even as you're sort of telling folks about these folks who you know, I'm imagining right. that you're having to to give the SBC stamp of approval, right? Like they're they're what they're wondering is is this person, quote unquote, safe? Are they a liberal? Are they a Marxist? Is it okay if I right. associate with them? Which is also yeah. exhausting because it's like, fam, they're just, they're a brother or sister in Christ, period. What right. do yeah. need to know? Well, yeah. um, in, in, the, in the first point of your article, the first of your reasons, you said active harm requires active repair. Equity Absolutely will not be accomplished by the mere passage of time, resolutions, or sweeping past wrongs under the rug. Forgiveness isn't begotten by forgetfulness. Yeah. So I'm wondering, 
how would you advise or or recommend them to address the past? And what were the reasons they gave for not addressing these wrongs more intensely? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so so here's one thing that I've I feel like I ran into and and it was really just this like um you know when whenever you talk about owning the past people tend to say like but we already did that right look at 95 when we wrote a thing that said we're sorry for racism right and that's what i'm saying like anybody that thinks that you've dealt with the past by saying sorry for racism like i teach my daughter right she does something wrong and I say, hey, sweetheart, you've got to go and uh, apologize to your mom. And she'll go and say, sorry. And I say, no, that's not an apology. Like, what did you do? Come on. And and yeah. there's times where she'll be like, well, I don't know. And what I say is, all right, well, I'm going to sit down and I have to help you see exactly what you did. Uh and I feel like that's what we run into. It's not that folks aren't sorry for racism, but it's like, yo, they don't even know what the SBC did, right? So they think we owned slaves in 1845 and that was why. And it's like, yo, I've got a New York Times bestseller that I need y'all to uh, read. It's called The Color of Compromise. Come on, uh, come on. <laughs> there's a lot more than that. And so I start to say, no, no, listen, like segregation, right? You do know uh, that uh, that the SBC did play a large part in fighting against it, right? So when they tell the story of the history, and I linked uh, in the joint to um, uh, back in 2013 or 2014, they put together this history of the SBC as they were getting ready to launch this thing called Send, and they showed it in stadiums to you know thousands of folks that summer. Even the small things it talks about. And then uh, the veterans came back from the war and the suburbs were built and they moved out there and the SBC churches flourished and all that. And then they gloss over that. And I say, no, no, wait, 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 wait. But you do know that black people went to war as well, too. Mm. And black people were eligible for the VA and the FHAs. And uh, it was white people and the religious communities that backed the political uh, uh, affiliations of that day that kept people segregated and ensured that these Black people did not have access to the most basic way that American families build wealth, right? So you do see uh, yes. Yes. that the racial wealth gap that we see today, right? Um in large part is due to uh, the the FHA back then and the fact that before the FHA, there was not a middle class, right? Like the FHA took blue collar white families and created the middle class. And mm. it was like the white evangelical church that lobbied to keep segregation in place so the increased crime, the increased drugs, all of those things that you see, I do want you to know that that groups like the Southern Baptist Convention were not just right passive participants that were swept away, that were influenced just because they hung around the wrong 
country. They were actively architects yes. handing people uh, the bricks, managing shifts to ensure that this uh, uh, wall of inequality was built. Like, so, like, don't tell me that the church doesn't have any hand in the political landscape of the day when it was large swaths of the church that built the walls and the roadblocks like have led to uh, the economic disparity that we see today, right here and right now. And listen, that is not opinions. That is, those are facts. That's history. Like you read history books outside of the ones that they give you at school and you will find out those are facts. And the only people that don't acknowledge those are facts are people that have benefited from it. And that's what, what I'm saying. Like, and all that I'm saying is, hey, look, y'all don't even have to make a commitment to do anything about it. Let's let's wrestle with history. But then it gets to, yeah, like um, one of the biggest roadblocks is just thinking that major change is going to come moderately, right? So when Jesus says things like, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, um, for it's better for you to like to not have a right hand than to have your whole body in hell, mm. right? Come There's on, folks man. that would say things like, ah, man, it don't take all that. Jesus is being extreme, but he's saying this as God who is like, no, 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 no. Listen, hell is, is an actual play. And uh, I'm saying that that is not too extreme, right? And so I think what what I found out or what I learned is that when you do start to talk about things, so years ago, you know, we sat in a room with a bunch of people all across the SBC, a group of like lots of black pastors, leaders, and some white dudes. And so it was a diverse group at NAM. And it's like, hey, let's talk about all the things that we can change that we should change. And I remember sitting at a table, you know, and me, and 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 a few other dudes were just like, yo, nothing else matters if we don't do something about this name. Um, not that the name is everything, but it's not nothing. And not even like, I don't suspect that right now, if we bring up the name change thing in 2018, that it would pass. But what it does do is even if it fails, it starts a national conversation that, hey, y'all, the Southern and Southern Baptist Convention was not a geographical term. It was a theological and ideological term. Mm. And we really have to embrace that and talk about that. And if you bring that in, even though it'll fail to pass, then it starts the conversation that gets people to start to remember the history. And then once that's done, that's the first domino that has to fall but until that's done, um, you're just going to get people that are in power that are going to tell people it don't take all that. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate programs. 
Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. You know, and this really, uh, it really ties into this concept that you were talking about in the article. I think so well, this concept of optional participation versus obligation, yep. right? Yeah. And, you know, I think I think you're approaching this and so many of us are approaching this from two separate places, right? right. So we're approaching this from the place of, number one, we have personal experience with this. Right. So this isn't just something that affects us, but it's something that affects people in our churches, our families, our community, um, the intimate relationships that we have are affected by this reality. And then also what you're talking about in the previous answer, you gave a deep dive right. into the intersection of both history, sociology, theology, yeah. and how it integrates together. Yeah. You're not going to get that by just you know speed reading a book or no. cramming <laughs> the night <laughs> right. after you know, crisis happens the night after a new hashtag. Yeah. And so what you're really driving home in the article is even this must become obligation for us to address. We must address this. And if we do not address this using all the tools that we have, the history, the theology, the sociology, and how it's integrated and how there are parallels even within the scriptures, right? we're going to have long-term negative effects. So can you talk about can you talk about that phenomenon of op- optional participation? Well, because I, I think that was so yeah. helpful because I feel like there's a lot of people who are in spaces yeah. that all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, this is this matters to you now. So, man, let me text you real quick. Let me shoot you a DM. That's what, oh, yeah. let me just like speed read and let me, you know, watch a couple of YouTube videos and, yeah. you know, watch a documentary. Let me catch up. Let me catch up. But what are the long-term effects on our theology if we're not integrating a proper understanding of culture into that. Yeah. Uh, Swami, man, I think that that's a great point. Uh, I, I think there's so much that we miss about like how God would have us to be faithful in the world that we're in, in the times that we're in right now. Right. So, um, uh, I'm trying to think, yo, you you think of like Psalm eight, right. Where it's God, you, you know, Mm -hmm. duh. Lord, uh, Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, and so it's this psalm that's about, you know, the glory of God and the dignity of man, right? Both of them. Um, and I think we live in a polarizing world where somebody will say, nah, well, I'm more about this and less about this, right? So we have folks in the church that are like, man, I'm all about the glory of God. And the problem with the world is they want to talk about dignity, but they don't want to talk about God. Uh, but I think what Psalm 8 helps us see is that, yo, listen, fam, if you're going to be about one, uh, you have to be about both, right? There's an aspect of the glory of God that's revealed in the dignity of man. And, and the thing that he brings up in Psalm 8 is just that unique place that man is in. He's lower than God, but he's above the animals. And so David sees God's glory as man sits in his rightful place. So if you are about God's glory, God's glory is dimmed and muted when man is subjugated because man was not created to be that way. Um, If you're about God's glory, 
man is or God's glory is dimmed when man is deified or meant to be equal with God by the way he subjugates and oppresses. And we have to see that there is no, there's an obligation that we have uh, to to right these wrongs. And this is where it just ties into that very first point, that if you do not understand the active role that um, your group has played in all of these things, then you feel as if it's okay to enjoy the benefits of the past without righting the wrongs that got you there. And I just feel like um, it's only optional to people that feel or that have disremembered history. It's only optional to people, I think, that have rejected that uh, nothing that we have today is an accident, right? Uh, Yeah. The intentions of the inventors of uh, these racist practices and structures, their intentions have outlived them and have soared to greater heights than they would have anticipated. And I think we have to say we have an obligation to right those wrongs. Like that to me is it basic Christianity. And so in some senses, and, and it may just be because of time spent or the convos that I tend to find myself in, in some ways, it kind of feels like like arguing with somebody about gravity, right? It's okay. like, yo, I believe that it's there. And they're like, no, it's not. And so at a certain point, it's like, man, I don't really know what to, <laughs> I really don't know what else to say. I think it's there. And yeah, I think I'm done trying to convince you that it's there. Like I'll... I've got to go about and be uh, about the work and save people that know gravity exists and they're willing to jump from a building. Um, I've just got to go and save them. And by God's grace, I'll be here to pick up the pieces when you fall and things break and you say, oh, it it was a real thing. Ooh. Tyler, we got a theologian on the mic today. Please, <laughs> deep. So just continuing with this incredible article on your fourth reason for leaving, you shared a prior quote. You said, where you have a diverse group of people sharing solidarity around a worthy concern, you'll you'll end up getting both unity and equality. Where you merely aim for being undivided, you'll get neither. Right. Can you unpack that for us and and maybe share an example of what this looks like? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, man, the very first thing and the thing that we just continually have to sit with is that unity is not a vice or a virtue, right? Not absolutely. We tend to paint it that way, but it's not, yo. Unity is a vehicle. And the most important thing about a vehicle is who is driving, right? The Nazis are unified. Nobody likes them. The Lakers are unified. Nobody likes them, right? (laughs) Unity is, it's a vehicle to get us towards this goal. And so where there is disunity, there is a cause. And the way that you fix 
Unity as the goal is to address the cause, right? You do not fix disunity by talking about unity. That's not the way that things work, right? It's like a husband that like would 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 beat his wife and she has a black eye and he comes around and says, let's not be mad at each other. Let's just talk about being together. Let's remember the good times. Let's remember how far we've come. And what she's saying is, no, no, wait a minute. In order for us to really be unified, we've got to talk about the things that stand in the way. And your abusive practices are the things that stand in the way of unity. Um, And I just feel like uh, even the conversation, we've talked about this just time and time again, just like racial reconciliation. Uh, Man, I just saw this today in a large city. A group of pastors are going to come together in the course of the next um, few weeks and this fall, they're going to preach about racial r- reconciliation. And um, they're like, hey, here are the eight texts that we've chosen. Uh, two from Genesis, a bunch from the New Testament. Um, and I just looked there and all I could think of was, and again, I don't say this in a pejorative or a condescending way, but all I could think of uh, it was a group of white dudes that chose these verses because mm. they're about unity. Uh, what's missing in all of these texts are the minor prophets. There's not a conversation or a text about justice and injustice and righting wrongs and what the church should do in that, which is the thing that will bring about unity, like the civil rights movement was a diverse movement, not because they aimed to be diverse, but because you had a diverse group of people sharing solidarity around a worthy concern. And there you get a diverse movement. Like diversity is a byproduct. It's not the end goal. You're never going to get there. And that's just the thing that I want to tell people. You're never going to get there. If you could, you would have like, and frankly, there are just not like, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, 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 I mean, please like tweet me, tag me, po- like post me, help me see people talking about rec- reconciliation and unity, right? Uh, and not Bible verses. Don't give me those. Help me see where it's practically worked out today. Like, help me see where unity and diversity have been achieved by talking about unity and diversity. And I don't think there's a bunch of those out there, but I could give you five places, right? I could give you a bunch of places off the top where there's a diverse group of people that are talking about justice and they have both equity and unity. And they don't talk about unity. They talk about the things standing in the way. And so again, like that was really the heart behind it, that once the church starts to talk about those things, um, then you start to see, oh, the things that are standing in the way of the unity was not an accident. It was intentional. Well, then you've got to go back and say, all right, well, who built this? Who put this in place? And then you start to read history and you start to read, and I'm going to go on a 
soapbox here. Um, you start to read books outside of the Bible and they help you understand what's being said in the Bible, right? And yes, that's yes. sacrilegious to some folks, but 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 it's like this. No, no. Unless you have science, uh, the Bible would not make sense. Archaeology is a science. If we did not have archaeology, much of your Bible would not make sense. You wouldn't be able to recapture uh, the context and all of that stuff. So there is something about books and disciplines outside of the Bible that help us to understand the Bible better. And people can argue that until they're blue in the face, but I guarantee you, uh, nobody argues that in practice. The problem is when we start to talk about social sciences and history, now all of a sudden those are out of bounds. And all that I'm saying is like, man, once you start down this trail of really starting to dive deep into, all right, let, let's take a break from the unity talk and, and let me just start to look and say, hey, let me assume that all the people that I disagree with are telling the truth. And let me just start to go down that path and verify all their claims. And then you start to like read and you do this deep dive. And, you know, Tyler, Jamar, like y'all know this. Uh, the people in y'all's worlds that are allies now that weren't allies back then found themselves at a place where they started to take a deep dive. And then once you take a deep dive, you, you start to see, oh, wait a minute. Um, the talking points of my political party denomination, my church, really don't hold up weight when I start to bring in facts and dates and times and say, what about this? What about that? And so, yeah. You know, that's so helpful. Um, I just have one more question on my end. You know, near the end of the article, you had this really piercing quote that I feel like summarizes so much of where many of us are at and have been in the past. You said, while others were proud of their SBC passports, I was always aware that I wasn't a citizen. Yeah. What did you what do you feel like it did for your your mind? What did it what did it do to your heart? What did it do to your soul? Yeah. To occupy a place for so long where you didn't belong. Now, how are you processing that? Yeah. Like how are you dealing with that? I feel that so many black Christians are in that space of recovery and healing. Yeah. yeah. Um, trying to reclaim what God has for them. And yeah. so what did it do to your mind, your heart, your church? And, and how are you processing that now that you've left? Right. Well, so two things. Um, you know, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and it was just a diverse place to grow up in. So the community that I lived in was yeah, white, black, and Hispanic. Um, every school that I've gone to from, you know, elementary to doctorate, uh, uh, to the doctoral level has been uh, predominantly white, right? So it's it's kind of like like y'all just y'all know being a black man in America is is like that's the reality that we live with, right? And so when we got into the SBC, on one hand, it was like, yo, this is nothing new. Um, 
And so the best that we try to do is we just, uh, while we were there, I think we tried to, um, we tried to create a home within a home, right? So at the conferences, at the meetings and all of that stuff, the main sessions were cool, but the time that like we really went there for the hallway sessions, right? The times where we got a chance to link up. And so we we did our best to try to create a home within a home. I think um, what's been empowering about leaving uh, the denomination has been one, and I just want to be very, very clear and say, say this, um, the overflow of love and support that has come from people within the denomination. So at the end of the day, there's a bunch of people on the inside uh, that they get it, but they just don't feel it, yo. Yeah, yo, it's it's like a uh, black mold, right? Um, people respond differently to black mold, right? So there's some folks, yo, just a hint of it, their head starts to hurt, they're sneezing, coughing, it's really bad. Some people can deal with a whole bunch of black mold, uh, and so I found ourselves at a place like this where. Uh, racism in a denomination or an environment is like black mold, right? So uh, the minorities that have to face it are like, yo, this is bad. And and so I think our response is, um, hey, this black mold is bad. I've got to get out of here. And I've had a bunch of like white dudes say to me like, yo, man, I read what you wrote. And I agree with all the same points of the SBC. I think all of that stuff is bad. And their first thing is, well, where else? Where to? Where are we going to go next? And I'm just like, that's a question that you ask when the mold don't affect you, right? Like, hmm. so for me, it's it's so bad here that I don't eat. Like, I just need to move, right? So I don't need to. I don't need to know where the next place is that I'm going to live, right? Uh, I think it's better for me to be homeless and to sleep in my car than to be here right now. And so there's some folks that are just in the joint and they'll say, hey, as soon as I've got another lease and stuff locked up, I'm going to leave here and I'm going to move right there and I'll be right there with you where you have when you have things set up. And so right now, it's just more so, hey, uh, we've got to get out and y'all, let's really be about creating a home for us. So I think if anything, what this has done um, is it hasn't been discouraging. It's just reminded me the importance of the fact that we need to create a home. Uh, yeah. For us and people like us. <laughs> oh man. There, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this entire interview like three or four more times. You just dropping so much wisdom. Give us one more gem here. I've got one more question for you. Okay. So yeah. um, what is really notable about your story and your journey is that it's not yeah. that you're, you're leaving the SBC, but that right. you left it in a public way. And so right. this this dovetails with some conversations we've been having at the witness, and we started using this term "leave loud, leave loud." Right. Yep. And it symbolizes yeah. that sometimes it's important for us to leave in a way that that demonstrates that public repentance, public repentance, is needed yeah. for the public and private harm that's done. So, 
what do you hope that black Christians learn from your story as you've publicized it, as you spread the word, what do you hope black Christians learn from your experience? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Uh, maybe let me just speak to my motivation and whatever you glean and learn, then that's fine. I mean, one of the reasons why I left loud was because I think I got tired of people who I imagined were friends and allies, uh, the misstep of their friends didn't cost them anything. So uh, it's the type of thing where it was like, it just kind of felt like we would always be around, right? And so at some point, you know, I've just had talks and it's like, yo, like y'all have to choose. You got to pick a side. Like, um, like we really have to get to a place and one of the reasons why I left loud was just, we really have to get to a place where it's not just like, don't just let the racists leave your organization. And then after they leave, now you're more emboldened to speak about racism. Uh, the racist shouldn't always have to leave. They should be getting put out. And hmm. if y'all aren't about putting them out and we just have to sit here and continue to deal with it, then I can't like, it's going to cost you something. It has to cost you something. And that's the thing. Once people feel it on the inside, then things change. And so part of why I left the way that I did was because I wanted people to feel it, right? Not in a vindictive way, but as a like goad towards action, like, Y'all really got to do something. And it was a gay. Yeah, I mean, now I'm being painted as in some ways as the like, you know, the angry black guy took the yeah bread and uh, and and ran. But I'm like, nah, like y'all know that ain't me. Y'all know that's not my disposition. Y'all know I haven't been that like. My air is that uh, like I've aired because I've been too accommodating and patient and that's done harm to people that have looked to me for leadership. And so I'm just like, nah, like y'all really have to feel it. And I want to be abundantly clear. And yeah. And as I left, it's the type of thing where it's like, yeah, people that aren't involved in all of this are making non-issues issues, but like nobody from the denomination is, uh, so my letter did not come or the reasons that I put did not come as a shock to anybody. Like, oh, I, I didn't know that like John felt this way. Everything that I put there were things that I've said with much more teeth in personal conversations and emails and all of that stuff. And so from that standpoint, it's a, uh, um, I really wrote this not for the people that, that were involved. They heard this. I wrote this yeah, in hopes that maybe like uh, Paul did in Philippians one, that like most of the brothers, yeah, yeah. Seeing how I stood would be emboldened to take a same stand for Christ and to know that, yo, 
it's not the end of the world, y'all. There is a bigger world out there than whatever denomination or subgroup that you're a part of. It is a small, it may seem like 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 a big pond, but these are little fish in the grand scheme of Christianity, in the grand scheme of God's plan for the entire world. I just hope that people wouldn't be as intimidated to yeah, speak the truth in love. So that's what I hope that this does. I hope that there's more, um, yeah, statements and things like that written so that yeah, any yeah, charges of impropriety or ulterior motives in me would be clarified as, uh, as people like us write the long hand for the people that aren't involved in the convo. Like with my three tweets, y'all knew what I meant and what I'd been through. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So y'all could have spelled out what I wrote in those four points. The four points were, yeah, yeah, broader. And so I just hope that, so I hope more clarity comes about. I hope within the SBC that that takes place and that things change, right? So at the end of the day, man, I'm not like, yeah, you know, the reason why, like, I'm not sitting here thinking about the SBC day and I I still pray for them, but it's like, yeah, prayer is the extent of my participation and involvement, but I'm praying that, yeah, that God would change things. And, um, Although I may feel hopeless, I'm not allowed to be hopeless because my religion is based off of um, a persecuted Jew that got up from the dead. So if he got up from the dead, I mean, I really can't call anything a dead end, but I'm hopeful. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Wow. Man, Pastor John, thank you so much for being generous with your time and uh, for hopping on this platform to share your story. I just... I feel like so many people are going to be liberated and encouraged. Yes, yes. And so we acknowledge you and and thank you uh, yeah. for taking your stand and for putting to words what so many people within your denomination and outside of your denomination have had to deal with and are dealing with and will deal with in the yeah. coming days. So we appreciate you, sir. Uh, yeah, thank you, brother. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.